Welcome everyone. It's time for another uh, Spotlight interview and today this is uh, definitely the most exciting one I've done so far. Uh, I am excited. Uh, I've been looking forward to this all week to have a true legend, one of the best, most celebrated game producers in the business. Uh, Rod Ferguson has had a hand in many franchises you know and love. Gears of War, Unreal Tournament, Shadow Complex, Infinity Blade, Bulletstorm, Bioshock Infinite, Diablo, and let us not forget Microsoft Train Simulator. Uh, I have to say, and this is not a joke, with all the love and uh, uh, critical acclades that the uh, revival of Flight Simulator has had, I'm, I'm hoping for a Train Simulator rebirth. Uh, I would buy a computer and a c- controller for my dad just to, to give us something to finally connect about. If if we could bring Train Simulator back, he might finally understand what it is I do with my life. In today's global gaming marketplace, your players want to pay how they want, when they want, and where they want. Accepting localized forms of payments and keeping up with what's trending is key to growing your gaming business and to finding new untapped markets. That's where Exola Payments comes in. With just one simple integration, you'll be connected to over 700 localized preferred payment methods on a global scale, including bank cards, digital wallets, mobile payments, cash kiosks, gift cards, special offers, and more. Plus, with Excel acting as your merchant of record, they assume the risk of cost of complex VATs, sales taxes, laws, and regulations. Leave every transaction to the experts while you focus on retaining and expanding your audience. You can get started today. Just head over to exola.pro slash paystation or look for the link in the description of this episode. Exola Payments, it's what your gaming business needs to succeed. Yeah, we almost we almost killed our That's audio amazing. guy because uh, we were recording the in the, the Japanese bullet train, and when the arm goes up to touch the wire, to like he want we wanted the sound of it connecting to the wire, but there was a number of us were concerned that it was going to arc into the microphone and like into him, so we were like all sitting there going like it's going to arc, it's going right. to arc, but. <laughs> But it was funny is that after we did Train Sim, one of the projects that the Microsoft was looking to do was uh, Microsoft Scuba Sim, and I was I was all about that. I'm like, if you, if your need for realism is as important on Scuba Sim as it is important on Train Sim, then I am happy to travel to all the all the islands and all the reefs and and you know that sounds like an amazing project to, yeah. to lead. That uh, I'm I guess Subnautica <laughs> is probably the closest thing we have to. Uh... Scuba Sim, I think people would love <laughs> yeah, that. The gameplay is challenging, but I, yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, just selfishly, I scheduled this interview entirely <laughs> okay. for There's my There's no listeners, benefit. it's just you and I talking. I wanted, yeah, this is, I mean, they know that every episode is this way, but this one particularly, I thought, um, how can I get better at game production and who can I talk to? Um, and you know, some of the projects you've led or been a part of, I mean, it's some of the biggest games in, in, in the entire industry, uh, right up until now, uh, where you're leading the mm-hmm. entire Diablo franchise. Um, so to start with, 
you know, let's just talk about uh, how did you get your start? How did you get into game production? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my start was really around project management. Um, you know, I started as a Microsoft consultant in Ottawa, Canada, and uh, they had a, and so I was supposed to be a, what they call a post-sales tech consultant. So you sell some big enterprise software to a big company and then we're kind of the technical force that comes in afterwards. We charge you a ton of money. I think I think at the time we were they were charging people like fifteen hundred dollars a day for us to go in. I didn't get to see fifteen hundred dollars a day, but I, they were charging fifteen hundred dollars a day for me. Right. Um, but there, I wasn't the most technical person, um, and so you know, you're, it's kind of like you have to make your. It's like being a lawyer; you have to make your billable hours and those sorts of things. And so I really latched on. There was this course mm-hmm. called the Microsoft Solutions Framework, and it was. Uh, a course that was built on the idea about how to teach enterprise customers to develop software the way that Microsoft developed software. And so um, I started to teach that course and it was a three-day course and I, and, um, I, I taught it a lot and I got really good at it. And, and so eventually I became the champion of Canada. I was like the person to go to in Canada if you wanted to, to get the Microsoft Solutions Framework course. Um, and Microsoft, like Redmond out of the blue, said, hey, we're going to make another version of this course for our consultants. Um, would you like to come down and lead that uh, as the kind of the champion of Canada? Would you want to come down to Redmond? And like, I get to go to the mothership. I get to be a real Microsoft. Like, at the time, like when you're in Microsoft Canada, like it's cool. Right. But it was like it wasn't Redmond. And so this idea of getting to go to Redmond and be a project manager for it was really exciting. And so I did that for about a year and a half. And we put out another version. And it was great. And but then I was like, well, my Microsoft was getting into games at the time. Do you mean like Deadly Tide? And it had a bunch of different kind of PC things that was trying to do. And uh, I really wanted to get in games. It was my passion. And so I was like, you know, everybody talks about like do what you love and you never work a day in your life. And so I was like, I love games. Microsoft does games. What's out there? And so you go to the website and it was, um, they had one opening because Xbox hadn't hit yet. This is like 1998, 1999. Mm-hmm. One game and it was and it wasn't the lead producer. It wasn't even the airplane producer. It was the scenery producer. And so, and if you go back and look at 1999, scenery at that time was like flat, very pixelated ground textures. Um, and so not mm-hmm. glamorous or, um, but it was like, oh, this is my, right. at least it's a way in. But I went that day to go interview yeah. and it's the same day they opened up a new job, which was Microsoft Train Simulator. And I had a really great conversation with a gentleman named Andrew Silverman, who's uh, the hiring manager there. And he was like, you seem great. Um, I'll, hi- I'll interview you for either of those jobs. And I was like, oh, I could be scenery producer on Flight Sim or I could be the lead producer for Train Sim and have my own game. I'll do that, you know. And so that's, and I was working with a company called Kuju out of the UK. And so uh, I did a bunch of interviews. Uh, Shannon Loftus was one of my first interviews. She's amazing. Um, and she's the first person who's ever aborted an interview on me before. Like it was, we were, we were going in and at that time she was making a game called Midtown Madness and we're, we're doing the interview and she's like, mm-hmm. you know, as part of her test for the interview, she's sort of like, Hey, look at the screen. It's a UI for Midtown Madness. What do you like? What don't you like? And I'm like, well, this is a problem. And these two buttons do the same thing, but one's a different weight and this font's not good. And I don't know where I'm going and where are you leading me? And so she's like, after a bunch of questions, she was like, okay, we're halfway through. I'm stopping the interview. We're done. I'm, I'm recommending you for hire. So let's just talk. What do you want to talk about? So it was really funny. I've never had that like, <clears throat> yeah, you're good. Great. I'm stopping it here. It was pretty funny. But anyway, so that became my first. And so I started working with a, with Kuju, which was great. Um, but what was really interesting is then during that project, like the 
Xbox hit. And they were like, okay, we, the studios kind of changed around and we became aces, this action combat and strategies uh, team. And they wanted a launch title uh, from us for Xbox. And so working with Stormfront up in San Francisco, they had a really cool water simulation uh, game that uh, they were calling like Warriors of the Shanghai Sea was what they were thinking about calling it. And um, so we took that on, I took that on. So I was doing two projects, one Xbox, like very lean edge because it was a new thing. Um, ultimately that became Blood Wake, mm-hmm. uh, which was this high speed gunboat warfare. But I was the, pretty much the first producer at Microsoft to ship, like I shipped Train Sim and Blood Wake within six months of each other. And so, and so that was kind of a really oh, wow. interesting time and a really quick, like getting up to speed on what it's like to ship games at Microsoft. That's crazy. And and from that experience doing Train Sim and doing one of the Xbox... Well, it was um, an attempted launch title. Launch we didn't make it. Find... We oh, were supposed okay. to be, but we didn't make it. But anyway, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, I'm a, I'm a, a, a Sega boy and a PlayStation boy. <laughs> I have to end boy. this interview right now. So I have to hang up right my, now. I've got... No, <laughs> you don't show me your Xbox that too, we're done. I've, I've got... Yeah, hey, I've I've got some I've got some <laughs> gaps in my Xbox knowledge. I mean, I've played plenty of Halo and plenty of Gears. Um, how did Infusion mm. Frenzy? One of my that was uh, we didn't we didn't play Mario Party. We played nice. Fusion Frenzy. Actually, I remember. Um, so how did you get from there to? Oh Gears yeah, of War? so it's a little bit of a story, but I'll go. I'll try to do this fast. But essentially, Microsoft kept going waffling between the way to make games is to have internal studios or have external studios and because it's like internal we control it external it's cheaper and so they kept kind of going back and forth trying to find how to best do games and so i after i had shipped um blood wake there was this notion of internal studios was the way to go and so i helped you know get an internal studio trying to get that going have a bunch of game ideas that we wanted to make um but it was very clear that Microsoft was not set up to be an internal game, game studio place at that time. Um, and so uh, mm. I could see the writing on the wall that basically we were going to get rift. Like we were going to get like, oh, or people, there was just too many people here and we weren't, they, and we couldn't, they, they just didn't know how to do it. So I was like, you know, I, I, I love doing what I'm doing. I need to get out of it. This is a bad situation. I need to go back to publishing, back to working with third parties. And so they said, well, we have this game. Um, called Counter-Strike uh, that you might know from with Valve and then we're bringing it to Xbox and we're trying we need to get that out really quickly and so I was like yeah I'm happy just give me anything and so I took that on and it was like a crazy project I flew to Dallas saw where they were I phoned Bonnie Ross who's my boss at the time and I'm like cancel it and she's like what and I'm like it's not even started like it's terrible like it's not good to go you like we've got like you know oh, six no. months or nine months to, to Christmas and like it's, it's not gonna like and then she says, like, but no, but we need it. And I'm like, what? And I, I'm like, no, it's not even, you don't understand, not even started. And she's like, no, no, we need it. And I'm like, okay. And she's like, what would you need? What would it take for you to ship that game? And I'm like, okay. So in my head, I'm like, what list of things could I give her that is so preposterous that there's no way that she would say yes because I need right. her to cancel this game because it's not going to go. <laughs> I need a dump truck full exactly. of red rope licorice. Exactly. That is the key ingredient. Number one. I, yeah. This list is bullet 47 bullet is, points yeah. Bullet two is I only eat green M&Ms, so we have to go through every one and pull out just the green. No, so I was like, I need every dev leader, every studio dev lead or TD, a, tech, a technical director and that thing to become part of a team. I need to pull the, the lead programmer from 
ritual in Dallas. I need to fly him up to Seattle. Uh, I need to build, like, it was basically I had to build a team from scratch out of all the people that were there and, I, and all these sort of um, things right. I want to do. And so I'm waiting for her to go, like, that's impossible. You can't do that. And said so she said, done. And I went, crap. Like, okay, I guess we're, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> and so, yeah, so we went up and, and um, you know, brought this team together. And it was the first time I ever led a, real, a true internal development, like, where it was me and the team were in the building, you know, doing it. And it was one of the hardest projects I've ever shipped in my life because of the time, uh, the shortness of time. Like, at the last week, I was doing 22 hours I was sleeping for two hours in the office across the hall and like it was it was it was a real you know trial by fire but it really got me interested in internal development like the ability to work with a team as opposed I, I used to think about like making games versus watching other people make games is how I thought about the difference sometimes and mm-hmm. so we were successful we ship it everybody's happy um, they were like, wow, Rod, you, you worked with Valve like they're what they called it at that time a big dog developer you worked with a big dog developer successfully We've got another big dog developer, but that's not—it's not going so well. And maybe that would be something you're interested in. And I'm like, okay, what is it? And he said, well, uh, it's called Gears of War. It's being made by Epic Games. We just, we have their pitch, but it's—they're not giving us milestones. We don't understand where they are, where the progress is, and it feels kind of out of control. And so I said, okay, well, I'll work on that. And so for about six months, I worked on it um, and saw what was happening. They were trying to make two games. They were doing like an Unreal tournament and, and Gears at the same time. And we had really one producer at the, in the studio at the time. Um, and so I realized, oh, if I really want to go back to being internal, which is my, my passion, I learned from Counter-Strike. I'm like, I, I have to go to Epic. And so, um, so I, as my wife freaked out when I told her, I was like, hey, well, I'm, I'm going to go to Epic and we, could, we should have a, an Easter thing for the, all the kids on our front lawn, a barbecue. And she goes like, wait, 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 everybody in the company could bring their kids to the barbecue in our front lawn. I'm like, yeah, she's how many people are there? And I'm like, uh, I'll be employee number 63. And she's like, you're leaving a company of 63,000 to go work for a company of 63. And I'm like, yeah. And you're taking a pay cut. I'm like, yeah. And it's in North Carolina. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. She's like, I don't know. And I'm like, no, we're doing this. So we went and did it. She, she jokes that like, if you go back to our house in Woodenville, uh, Washington, you'll see her, her nail marks out of the driveway as they pulled her away. Um, but you know, it, but it was, it was just right. like, such a great opportunity to work with an amazing studio on an amazing game. And so anyway, so that's how I got into, and so, I, you know, I, I, I got to do that. And then basically as I worked on the gears games, um, I basically every game changed my title. So I was a, I was the only producer on gears one, um, gears two, I was like this, a senior mm-hmm. producer, but I, and I had like two producers with me. <clears throat> and then by Gears 3, I was executive producer and had more producers. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then um, my cap stands up on the, sh- on the ship party without talking to me, by the way. He stands up in the middle of the, the launch part of the gold party or ship party for Gears 3. He stands up and he goes, I'd like to announce to everybody that Gears of War 3 is the last Gears game that Rod Ferguson will ever ship. And I was like... Like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Like, I just thought, am I getting fired in this moment? Like, right. what is going on? <laughs> exactly. Am I getting publicly fired exactly. at the Gone Gold party? Yeah, I thought exactly. I did a you good were. job so, And here. so this is like, what? Like, you can tell, like, the room just went, what? Like, And then he goes, because he's now the director of production right. and will be focused on all of Epic Games. And I was like, oh, you just promoted me without talking to me or, like, and announced it publicly in front of everyone. Like, it was very awkward. Right. He didn't, no. he didn't want to give you a chance to say no. That's more yeah, responsibility exactly. than but, I want. You know, and so but working at Epic and, and, you know, I had the opportunity to help with Unreal and Unreal Tournament. I had opportunity when we brought in Chair to work on 
um, you know, uh, Infinity Blade and Shadow Complex. Like, I hope they could share was a small company that didn't have a lot of experience in terms of like the kind of production that I do, which is tends to be a little bit more um, date forward. Um, you know, because if you look at any of my G- GDC mm-hmm. talks, like the, you know, scoping success, it's really about part of being successful is hitting your window of opportunity and, and having everything that can support your game be there at launch so that you have that that you know that so you kind of have to call your shot and then and then do what you say and that's kind of has been my style and so that was something that chair didn't have a lot of so i helped them kind of work through triage and how to deal with their bug counts and and burn downs and those sorts of things so it was kind of cool to get that kind of breadth of experience there so that was kind of how i got into it got it and that i mean that story is great because it takes us through so many different kind of levels of production, internal and external, team building, yeah. different levels of responsibility. Um, it, it sounds like, you know, kind of the core skill set that maybe you picked up as a, um, from that initial project management phase is um, how do I create <laughs> order out of chaos and how do I set a roadmap that gets us to the business outcome that the company needs and then ensure that we, you know, hit every step. Yeah. I I always like, and I always say that production is called is reality and induction, right? Like you're trying to always, your job as a producer is just bring reality to the situation. Your job is not to say no. Your job Mm -hmm. is not to like, you know, whatever your job is to make people aware about the cost of their decisions or the cost of their ideas. Um, and so that was kind of one of the things. It was one of the jokes early on is that when I first joined Epic, I, at that time we still used Microsoft Project, and so I was a big fan of Gantt charts. And so, but typically, a, the kind of they were using Excel, and it was basically a list of tasks and a list of times, and you kind of got a general sense of the schedule. <clears throat> but there were no mm-hmm. dependencies in it at all. And so once you started linking tasks in a Gantt chart right. and you started creating dependencies, and you realized, oh, the audio for that monster can't start for six, seven weeks because of all the dependencies, you, you realize where you really were. And that was one of the jokes in one of the lead meetings was, oh, they shouldn't call it Microsoft Projects, they should call it Microsoft Reality, because it was like, here's a wake-up call to where you really are. Um, and so that's really right. been a big part of what, you know, when I, whether it's Bioshock Infinite and going in and, and hearing all the producers stand up in the team meeting on the first day saying, we're on time, we're on time, we're on time, we're on time. And me walking back to my desk and knowing what I know about shipping, <clears throat> excuse me, um, looking at all what I know about shipping and what it takes for certification, what it takes for manufacturing, what it takes to to stabilize a game, and go, you're at least three months behind and you don't even know it, you know. And that was and so that was really step one mm-hmm. was really to get everybody anchored on where are we really and what do we really have to do. And that was where we were like, okay, how do we break down the game? What are the twelve things that have to you know? In, we break the game into fifteen levels. How do it's twelve things you have to do at every level? print it out on a giant thing that fills the hallway as a board, start scratching off things as we do it and and understand where we're landing. And that was part of the conversation because 2K also had the a lot of the, you know, Microsoft didn't have the same pressures around. When I was at Epic, we didn't have that sort of, you have to hit an end of a fiscal year kind of thing, you know, um, but 2K had that. And mm-hmm. that was some of the things that when we were shipping Bioshock Infinite, right. I was trying to push the date to say, they're not ready, we're not ready and they, I, like, I'm like, how far can I move this date? And they're like, you've got till the end of March because March 31st is our, our fiscal year end and we need to recognize that revenue of the launch. 
And so that, like, I think we were like March 25th. Mm-hmm. You go back and look at the actual launch date. It's like, you know, the last possible Tuesday in March. Um, and that was really just about what's right. the most we can do with the time we have left. Yeah. I, in your experience, you know, so I, I worked for Neil Young, who's another great experienced uh, exec level producer at a, you know, had a, uh, ran a bunch of franchises at EA. And he would always say to me that, you know, you have to shine a light on a, on the darkness. Your job is not to pretend right. that things aren't wrong. It's if something's wrong, your job is to shine the light on it and excavate it and figure out everything that's wrong so that we can fix it. And, and when someone is, when someone is standing up in a meeting like that, you know, whether it's Bioshock Infinite or any, any, you know, the, this is a very common thing. Somebody stands up and says, we're on time. Uh, it's gonna, it's gonna hit the date. We're gonna get our work done this sprint or whatever it is. And you know, from your experience that they're wildly off. Do you think, is it that there's something that the person doesn't know, something that the person is denying or just magical thinking of like, or, or is it just fear of right. uh, truth to power? I think you know where what are what are kind of these different things where a producer or leader is actually doing disservice to their team and, and to the company by by not acknowledging yeah i think it can i mean based on the situation i, I think i've experienced all of those you know at, at any given time and so the big thing I, i've had to really help more junior producers understand is that bad things happen to good producers you know that that you can't you don't mm-hmm. succeed by pretending everything's fine when it's not. You can't say it's not. The building's on fire behind you, and you're like, no, no, there's no fire. Um, it's that naked gun clip, you know, with the fireworks. Nothing to see here in the fireworks, you know, factories blowing up behind them. Um, it does you a <laughs> disservice because people don't trust you um, and don't believe what you're saying. Um, and so, like, the biggest thing for me when I talk about production and I talk about dates and, and scope and those sorts of things and then, is really about credibility and managing expectations. And so I'm a big believer in you you, um, you say what you do and you do what you say kind of thing. Like if you're gonna talk the talk, you gotta walk the walk. And, and that's the thing that's really important I find is that you have to, people need to know that they can trust you and that what you say something, you mean it. And to get to that level of trust and to be that credible means you have to um, allow for uncertainty. And, and by doing that, it's things like buffering or, uh, you know, putting contingency into your schedule. And, and it's not about, you don't do yourself any service by being a pleaser and saying, oh, it'll be done in two days mm-hmm. when you know it might be six. And so people are like, okay, you set the expectation for two days. Mm-hmm. And when you deliver it on time in six, you look bad, but you're trying to make them happy because they really wanted it in two days. That doesn't help anybody. And so to me, it's a conversation around how do I manage expectations and how do I be when I tell you six days, once I've told you that, I'm going to do everything in my power to make it be six days. And so if it's seven days, I'm going to work hard to make pull it in by a day. And, it, and if it's not six days and I have really blown it, then we're going to have a conversation about it. And you're going to understand that it's what went into that decision and why I encountered these problems and what the issues were. You know, I used to talk about in the course, the Microsoft Solutions Framework, of course, about that is that, you know, if, if you're my client and I'm having a conversation with you, and you and you say, Rod, I want you to go make me a thing that has 10 features. And I'm like, okay. And I go away for a month and I come back and I give you one of the 10 features. You're very mad at me. I've underperformed and you are not happy at all. Now, 
take the same right. case. I come to you. You say, Rod, I want you to make me something with 10 features. And I go, okay. And then I realize once I've gone back that within two days, I realize, oh, one of these features is impossible. It's just completely out of scope or we have a supply chain issue or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And I come back and I go, Ethan, we, I, I can only do nine. And you're like, oh, well, I really wanted 10. But hearing what your issues are and hearing what the problems are, nine makes sense. And then three days later, same thing, another thing. You know, this person called in sick. I can't get this thing or whatever, da, da, da. It's going to be eight. And, and if we keep having this conversation and you hear why I'm dealing with the issues I'm dealing with and you're hearing about decisions I'm making and I come to you on the final day and I go, Ethan, as promised, here's the one feature you were expecting and you go, great, thank you, I appreciate that, it was a great job. In absolute terms, the first one feature and the second one feature are exactly the same. But in relative terms, your expectations were managed so you you knew one was coming and so for, therefore the result of failure or success is completely different even though the actual absolute result is the same and i think that's what people kind of don't quite understand about managing credibility is that you have to you know manage expectations you have to talk to people and you have to be honest with people and you have to just call like you know the amount of times that people try to put pressure on you go like i understand your pressure that why you would want it this time but it's not going to happen. So let's talk about what we can do and let's do the best we can and then deliver against that. That was the, that was the March 25th date thing. It was like, we want it sooner. And I'm like, I would want it sooner too. Guess what? You're not getting it sooner. So let's talk about what we can do. Yeah, exactly. There's no sooner. Right. Yeah. There's no sooner doesn't exist. Exactly. Let's talk about what does. And that's that reality induction. And that's, that's the, you know, that's what I see the difference between sort of junior and and senior producers, at least what I've seen is that, Junior producers sometimes think they have some sort of, you know, there's kind of two things. One is the, what is my job? I mean, like part of it is that notion of why I call it reality mm-hmm. induction is that sometimes they'll say, oh, I'm here to say no. I'm here to close down everything. I'm here to hold it. We have a schedule. We're holding it. And you you and I both know, like, mm-hmm. game making is all gray. There's no black and white in game making. And there are many yeah. a times when it is the right decision to add a feature or to cause some churn or to let a person go because they're they're underperforming and that cause that impacts your schedule you know there's things you have to do through the development that isn't black and white so to have a black and white no 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 i want to add a feature no you can't it's not on the list that you made a year ago that's not real but that's kind of like mm-hmm. oh that's my job as a junior producer is to find out what your report is and to say no to you whereas with from a senior producer it's more about my job is to enable you. My job is to make you, make you successful. So if you come to me and say, Rod, I want to add this feature to the game because it's going to make it a better game. My job is not to say no because we don't have time. My job is to say, yes, I hear you. That does sound like that could be awesome. That's going to cost us three weeks to, to put in. Where would you like to cut three more weeks? Would you like to cut another feature? Would you like to add capacity by adding another person to the team? Or like, da-da-da-da-da. Like, I'm the person who brings you the bill at the end of the night and says, this is how much that costs. Are you willing to right. pay it? Not, no. You know, I'm again, I want to help you get there. I want to, I'm, I'm your, I'm, I'm trying to empower you, not limit you. Yeah, the the lessons, the key lessons here. Uh, <laughs> train sim. Let them know we're working on it. Train simulator right now. Yeah, uh, true. A true fan of uh, of trains, and uh, 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 I showed him one train simulation. It was the <laughs> most he's ever been into video games. Um, so some of the lessons here are around. I, I love this idea that the producer's job is to force everyone to confront right. the reality of the situation. 
um, and then to understand the costs and trade-offs. I think you know that's something I've tried to do a lot, sometimes successfully, sometimes unsuccessfully. Um, but when it's hey, we want to do X that we weren't planning. Well, what's it? What's it cost? What's the stack rank of the things we were planning, and what are we able to say no to right. so that we can say yes to this? Or you know, how yeah, else are we? Going right. to Every make list it is a prioritized list. You um, have to know where the line is. You have to know if something's going to fall off the edge. What's the first to fall? Um, and that way, you're always ensuring you're working on the most important thing because you're never going to get everything. So as long as you accept that reality, if I have a list of twenty yeah. things and I'm never going to get all twenty, they at least better be in the right order so that when you stop at eighteen the things you were working on were the most important 18 and not, you didn't waste time on 19 and 20. Yeah. Um, what advice would you have for someone um, who's in a situation where they try and um, mm -hmm. force trade-offs um, within leadership that's unwilling to accept them, right? This is something I know people uh, run into um, is, you know, hey, uh, we heard what you want, we can do mm -hmm. A or B, and then the response is, well, how do we do, <laughs> how how do, we do all of the yeah. above, right? A and B, right? Come come back to me with the A and B. And it almost, that almost sounds like the, uh, to go back to your uh, uh, example mm -hmm. with um, Counter-Strike, right. where you said, it can't be done, right? The, right? Cancel this game, it can't be done. And it sounds like that that had to have been a very critical level up moment for you because it was uh, she said well tell me how it can and then you you figured it out and you got everything you asked for and right. then you had yeah. to make it happen right so but how how you know managing managing upwards is just as hard if not harder than than managing downwards or sideways and you know, what kind of advice can you give when someone's having that sort of managing upwards trouble, whether it's with more senior producers or studio leadership? Yeah, or I mean, it depends on why whatever. you're getting the push you're getting. Like one of the things I like to use is the kind of the classic production iron triangle around, you know, OK, we have resources and we have features and we have time. And now those three things are connected. And so when we set this into to say this is our this is our game. We're going to build 10 features with 10 people in 10 days. Then that's what it is. And when you go like, no, no, I need it done in nine days. And you go like, well, I can't just shorten one side. I have to add a person or reduce scope or something like you have to adjust at least one other side every time you touch the triangle. Um, and I found that as, a, mm -hmm. you know, it's like people use it anecdotally and they're, they're the, you know, fast, cheap and good. You can only get two, you know, that joke, like, that's kind of what mm -hmm. the Iron Triangle, the production Iron Triangle is about, is talking about like recognizing that you can't just mess with one side. You just can't add features without increasing people or adding time. You can't just shorten time without adding people or reducing features. You can't just take people away and not reduce features mm -hmm. or increase time. Like there's a relationship between these three sides of the triangle, and that's I found that a useful tool um, when trying to talk about trade-offs and what it means. But the other part is showing your work, like. Um, when you get and once you've been in the game long enough, um, you definitely get what I would call your production spidey sense, um, where I don't need somebody to go and do mm -hmm. an in-depth analysis of what the cost is going to be. I can tell you 
having done it enough to say like that's not going to fit and they're like well what, where's the work and, and i go look like i can spend two weeks doing the work or i can just tell you right now and you can put those two weeks into the actual feature that we're going to go make but you know but before then right. before you get that spidey sense you do kind of have to show the work you have to show the diligence you can't just sit there and say no you have to say look here's our data that shows this person takes seven days to do this type of feature. And so we, where, we, where, do, where am I getting these seven days from? Or, you know, these are, like you need to show your work. And like I said, it's about credibility because once, once you get trust and once people believe what you're sitting, you're telling them um, and you're delivering, then they leave you alone because they know that you're going to deliver when you say, when you say I'm going to deliver it on March 25th, they go, we're not going to check in with you every week. We're not going to bug you every day. We know that because of our experience with you and what we've done in the past and the expectations you've managed and the credibility you've created that you're a person who does what they say they're going to do and I know you're going to deliver. And so that to me is sort of the big thing. I just, I don't know, it's just something I really have found to be a key part of success is that once you can get your team to believe in the sticking to whatever, like what you said, you know, because sometimes you'll get these little pressures of like, oh, mm -hmm. I haven't, you know, whatever, Jim McCarthy, who's I, I kind of consider a mentor in development, he, he has this joke about the day you make decaffeinated coffee instead of caffeinated coffee, you've slipped, right? That, that's going to cost you time now that people are understimulated or whatever. And like, you know, <laughs> the notion that, and then so some people are just like, well, then slip the date. And I'm like, that's not how this works. Like every time you hit a piece of a road bump and a piece of friction, you can't just, the default answer just can't be slip the date. And there's a number of different reasons for that. There's the credibility right. reason, but there's also the reason is you're not smart enough to know how big the slip actually is. And, and nothing is ever one for one. If you just slip the day, you probably need to change your schedule by three days because you probably have two more slips coming that you didn't know about based on that one. And, and so there's things to learn about your mm -hmm. team and your process and what it really actually costs when you do, you know, as, as Jim would say, trip, but don't fall down, you know, kind of thing is like, if you're going to trip, everybody trips, everybody makes mistakes. Some, and like I said, good th and bad things happen to good producers, but the key is not to fall over and not to break and not to, you know, you, you still have to try to stick to your plan and figure out how to get there. Right. And, and when you're, I mean, just even imagining what the production of the entire Diablo franchise must look like, um, you know, with Diablo 4, Diablo 2 Remastered, <laughs> Diablo Immortal, whatever right. else is going on. Like, I, I imagine that um, you need as many leaders as you, can as you can, who you trust fully, to be doing what they say they're doing. They need that credibility and they need to deliver and they need to be something where you're like, oh, I know I don't mm -hmm. have to worry about X because Jane's got it and I've, exp you know, she, I trust her to deliver on the date and I trust her that if she is not delivering on the date, she's going to come to me and tell me why it's not happening and what she can do about it, right? You need as, You need to put as many groups of people and buckets into I don't have to worry about this so I can focus my attention on to today's top priority yeah. or tomorrow's top priority well, is that kind of uh, part of the important part, part of, of it for up? sure I mean I have a great production director and Gavin Wishaw who's the who's the production director for D4 and so he's got a very large and we have great um, associate production directors that we've got with Tiffany and Michael and Chris, like we have a really strong production bench, but I think part of it when you get really big is making sure the, 
kind of that philosophies and your belief systems that you have as part of production are able to get all the way down to, you know, because one of the things that's happened in the industry, like when I talked about Gears 1, when I was in like employee number 63, I think we should basically Gears 1 was like an 80 person team. And then when we got to Gears 3, we were Mm -hmm. a 300 plus person team. And one of the things that really changed in the industry was in Gears 1 timeframe. And so this was 2005, 2006. Everybody was sort of generalists. Like I had level designers who could do lighting, who did blocking, mm-hmm. who did their own props, that did their own modeling and texturing. Like they did everything. And now you flash forward with the complexity that's happened in, in PBR lighting and all the way the things that you have to do with like you know the different tools that you have a person who's just a lighter. I have a person who just does environment art. I have a person who just mm-hmm. does interactives. So when you think about that generalization that would have existed you know twenty years ago to the specializations that have exi- that exist now across art and engineering and what have you that's also happened in production so when you look at gears where i i was a, a you know a producer of one um now you're in tens of producers and and each of them are like you're just the environment art producer and that's your job right that's a very specialized job and so making sure that the, the philosophies about what you expect from them get down to everybody into their specializations is really important and have that sort of clarity about you know how you lead by example and how you lead by setting expectations and i talk about that all the time about um to my to gavin and to the production team around like it's about credibility. It's about calling your shot. You know, if, if we have to make us, if we're changing a date of a milestone, I'm like, I'll let you make the call. Like, I'm not going to tell you what the date is. You tell me what the date is. But once you tell me, I'm holding you to it. Like, that's the date. I gave you carte blanche. You picked it. But now I want you to try to drive towards it mm-hmm. and deliver towards it. And that's your accountability for having that. And so that's part of just a, a philosophy that I, I, I kind of like to have is that, you know, if you're going to do bottom-up estimating and use that to drive a schedule, you can't do it. You have to also take into account, you know, the stuff I talk about in my GDC talks, which you have to take into account what's the bigger meta schedule, which is like, when's your window of opportunity? When does the business need it? When do you have fewer competitors? When do you have the most share of wallet? All those kinds of things. But um, but they own it, and they have to be accountable, and they have to hold it. And then and they, and they're building trust every time they deliver Every time, you know, the art environment team delivers on schedule, then we have trust in that, that team and that, and, and so that we don't have to worry about them and, or, you know, bug them all the time. Right. What are, um, it sounds like, uh, culture is, is prop culture and ownership yeah. are important tools, um, to kind of get into every level of the org. And kind of, you know, feeling ownership over your work is the difference between someone who thinks their job is to report that something's going wrong versus someone who thinks their job is to uh, figure out something's going wrong and figure out the solution and then report that, you know, say like as a package, right? This This is what's happening. This is what I think we should do about it is a much different conversation to bring to uh, uh, a project leader then, hey, um, uh, this is going off the yeah, rails. What, should, what fault, should I do? But they've screwed up. So, like, well, what? Yeah. I, I'm sorry, yeah. but all these artists, they just can't do right. what they say they're going to do. Um, and So how do you, what tools and tactics do you have to create a culture of ownership uh, and accountability so each person knows, you know, how to behave in this kind of entrepreneurial 
way where it is there, you know, where where they feel and their teams feel this is our responsibility. Yeah, I mean, part to, of it is just making it very clear, you know, one aspect that you do want people to be accountable. That like the one of the things I really don't like is the perception that um, product, producers are uh, observers that they basically have a clipboard and they're watching the team going like, ooh, that's not going well, and ooh, that's not going well. Okay, I'll, I'll report back what I observed. And I'm like, no, you're, like, again, as I talked about before, you're enabling them by giving them information that allows them to make better decisions. You're empowering them. You're facilitating things for them as opposed to mm-hmm. I'm just watching them and reporting back, which, so, and the thing, like, I always, if you're smart enough to see a problem, you're smart enough to help. And that's part of the accountability. I don't, like, you, well it's just like the notion of like oh those people over there are screwed or i've I've had a conversation recently we're like oh you know we saw that three months ago we should you know they should have done something about it i'm like well if you saw that three months ago why didn't you raise it three months ago why didn't you talk to them why didn't you talk to me like like Mm -hmm. that's a really disempowering way to think about it's their problem and i I think one way that you help that is you have to allow for that bad things happen to good producers is you have to allow for failure you have to allow for bumps in the road you have to allow for things to go wrong and, and be able to rein them back in. Like you said, it's not telling everybody that the building is on fire is not your problem. Your problem actually is not telling people the building is on fire or being mm-hmm. delusional about it or you lit the fire. One of those things. Like if you're the arsonist, also bad. But <laughs> <laughs> So I lit a fire. Um, the entire <laughs> shader team Because of quit. what I was doing. Yeah. And... Yeah, I uh, I may have made some miscalculations, and the entire shader team yeah. quit. So. so, but if you go like, "Hey, I'm yeah. I, I didn't add enough buffer time, and we we're behind schedule," or "Hey, I didn't mm-hmm. take into account um, true capacity," like everybody, you know, whatever your different producers use different eighty percent, seventy percent, whatever you think a person's mm-hmm. efficiency is, and that's definitely changed with RTO and th- like or work mm-hmm. from home. But like, like I said. Mm-hmm. the internet will go down someday or you'll be DDoS attacked and you'll miss, like the things will happen that are not under your control. And so you should, right. if you're, as long as you're holding yourself accountable for the stuff that you can control and you're being honest about the stuff that you can't control, um, then, and, and you create a culture where you allow for that to be like, oh, you, you know, your team delivered 80% of its goals, this, this milestone, let's understand it like let's do the retrospective or um and let's go oh you over scoped and oh you we missed this part and oh you know these sorts of things and then you can go that that's learning for the next time it's kind of that growth mindset you know there's a great book around that about just allowing people to learn through iteration and and so if you punish people to too much like too early like you you actually scare them about around being accountable because they don't want to get involved they're like if i get involved with that train wreck mm-hmm. then i'm going to get pulled into it and it's going to look bad on me as opposed to oh i see a way i could help i'm going to go help them out and try to you know make it better and if it doesn't work out at least it'll be better than what it was going to be if i didn't get involved you know and so so it's it's kind of those two things to me if i trying to give you a pithier answer but it's the kind of the notion of reinforcing that sense of accountability because that's that's probably number one for me is I if I hear a producer being um, an, ob- an observer that that's a button push on me like I have an irrational response to that of like mm-hmm. what is going on like that's not your job your not job is not to tell people <laughs> right. that yeah right. exactly you're not a journalist yeah, exactly you're a leader and, and right? like that's one of my one of the, before I left Microsoft there's a, they had a dynamics of leadership training and they had a great there's three things a leader needs to do 
Um, the first is create clarity. Second is to generate energy. And the third is to deliver results. And I love those three things. Like that, that like, if, you know, if I were to get a text-based tattoo, it'd probably be that. Like that, that notion of mm-hmm. your job is to take away the fog and the uncertainty and not knowing what's going on, that clarity around, again, the reality induction, the notion of what does it cost to do what you're doing how long should it take? What are the dependencies? What are the outside things that are going to impact you? Like that's your, and then that energy is like, let me solve the problem, put down the roadmap and figure out how we're going to deliver it and get people like moving forward and, 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 and getting those wins and, and getting success. And then at the end of the day, like deliver the results. You have to, you know, I, I, I make this joke that like, I like making games, but I love shipping games. And to me, that's, Mm-hmm. That's to me is the deliver results thing. It's like we can all sit around, like, you know, if I was, you know, Jeff Bezos wealthy and I want to sit around and, and I make games as a hobby and I never ship anything, cool. But to me, like, what I care about is what have I put into players' hands, and and so it's not about um, what I what we do. It's about actually what are the results of what we're doing and how do we get it out to players. And so that to me is an important part of that that sort of three step equation. I um, that generate energy is, you know, when I think about the shift to, um, I, I was kind of going through a combined um, building mm. an international team, so already not having everybody in the same room and not having, an, like, uh, not being in a place where it's easy sure. to bring everybody together or go visit. Um, so, like, inter- international team spread out among offices and then COVID and lockdown and work from home that um, generating energy was a really, uh, which is already a a difficult task when everybody's in the same room, became much more difficult. Because even something like having a group meeting where you celebrate people's praises and you want everybody to like acknowledge it and clap and be like, even, even that is difficult because like nobody (laughs) wants to sit alone with their partner or children in the other room and like a psychopath just going like, yeah, woo, woo, 47 points, like nobody's going to do that. Right. So any, any thoughts on in, you know, I think remote work is going to be a feature of our lives, of our working lives going forward. Like I'm looking at how do I build a, a remote for studio? And I think there's going to be a lot of uh, remote work, hybrid work um, going forward. What have you learned about generating energy over the past couple of years on um, when you've got these additional challenges on top of something that's that's already yeah no it's been it's been especially challenging I think for me I mean um, I had a, at the coalition up in Vancouver I had a great um, director of production Christy Ray she was amazing on on Gears Five and <clears throat> she was like how are you doing Rod and I'm like what do you mean she was like well your superpower is kind of being in the room and and motivating people in the room and like now you're on Zoom like how's it going and I'm like yeah it is actually really really hard um, and not having to read and people's cameras are turned off and um, how do you speak to people? And because you kind of get a feeling like, is it going? Like you can kind of alter your speech based on how the room is reacting, and you can't really do that in Zoom because yeah. you're kind of getting no fe- no feedback. Um, so it's definitely been challenging. But you know, I'm a big believer in, in in quick early wins. And one of the things that was already here when I got to the Diablo team was their milestone reviews, where they take a two hour meeting on the last Friday of every milestone and it's videos and presentations of what's in, what's gone into the build since the last milestone and the 
and it's like set to music and like and that is how like very inspirational very motivating to go like that's our game like we know what we're building we're seeing success across the and what's great is the energy on the team allows for that like as much as they're not screaming like a psychopath on a camera i found like the chat in mm -hmm. in zoom has been really interesting because historically when you stand up in front of hundreds of people they're all listening to you and they, nobody wants to interrupt or be a jerk or whatever. So, and you're not hearing any of the slides. So it's your presentation, yeah. it's your speech and you can kind of build to it. Um, but in zoom, it's like constant asides and comments and, uh, and, but a lot of it, uh, with a our team, which I've considered to be quite healthy is a lot of it is like empowerment and, and praise. And, you know, one of the things we try to do is we try to pick a different speaker each time to give them experience talking publicly. And, and so you'll have this very nervous associate producer trying to present this section and the team will be like, you got this, you're doing great. You're awesome. Like da, 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 da. Like, and so it, it really having that win of that end of milestone review, um, has, it feels really good. And we've also had the benefit of like with Diablo four, the team, um, we test the game like from prologue to epilogue really early. Like, this is the most I've gotten to play a game mm -hmm. from beginning to end. Uh, you know, you, like when I first joined, you could basically do it. And so to be able to, and the fact that we're, because we're playing, you know, we're, we're remote and we had to get the builds into developers' hands, we had to get it working on the retail environments like of all of our. So, you know, I'm mm -hmm. sitting there two Christmases ago on my. Xbox playing Diablo for the develop, you know, the latest build in my room, in my living room, and it, and having that notion of feeling the game and getting to see it, and having the team come together to play the game and and have feedback and 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 see the game get better, like that was another huge thing for us in terms of building momentum and building energy. Is like every time we came back from holiday, having just played the build all the way through. Like it had this sort of like, yeah, I know what we're building and, and we're moving forward and, that, and those sorts of things. So, but, I, and then like classically, like having a clear vision, like energy is great, but it needs to be directed. And so if you hype everybody up to, to be a chaotic frenzy and nobody knows what they're supposed to do next, that's no good. Like the understanding your pillars and understanding your vision or your mission and, and making sure that whatever energy you generate is focused towards what your actual goal is, is also really important. Yeah. Um, now, something that um, I've noticed about my own career and experience, and, and this may be part of working primarily VC-funded startups as opposed to, you know, I mean, uh, big public companies or private companies, is um, as a producer and a team leader, I have gotten more and more involved oh, yeah. in marketing. Uh, being an ownership, uh, having ownership over marketing and messaging and PR, or at least oversight, understanding the importance of dates and the business to the business's goals. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, what we need to accomplish as a business next month to make, you know, next year happen, all these things. And to the point where, um, you know, the last project uh, I was leading before I left to, to do my own uh, company, I was spending as much time on the go-to-market strategy as, as the um, mm. uh, game design. And I'm curious if that's been, like, does that experience sound like a feature just of being in a very user acquisition and marketing 
forward part of the industry or is that just a natural part of being uh, becoming more senior is understanding not just the game but the needs of the game and the needs of the player but the needs of of the business yeah I, I think it's about getting more senior i think as you go up you start to get exposed to the more thing you know like there's always a sort of how much do people know need to know about the money <clears throat> side of it and and the revenue and and mm -hmm. whether they're being driven creatively or being driven by like what are you trying what is the company trying to accomplish financially um but it was that was part of the wake-up call that i tried to bring to Epic when I left Microsoft was around that notion of, you know, a, a fixed ship date mindset, which just means like, it doesn't mean, you know, hard lock your date, but it means treat your date as if it were locked. Um, and the reason you do that is be, at that time was retail being very important. You're like, we have to be in flyers. We have to go buy space in a Best Buy flyer 14 weeks out, right? You know, we have to have trucks waiting at right. the factory by this time. And there's all this logistics and operation. And you go like, oh, there are regional people all around the world who want to amplify your game and help you sell your game and take over Burger King in Japan. And if they don't know when your game's coming, they can't do that. And if you go like, okay, game's done, now go do your stuff, you're right. too late. And so that notion of creating a predictable ship date that you feel good about, um, again, can be totally realistic and bottom up. I'm not saying it has to be forced or whatever. I'm saying just once you have a date, and generally, you know, best practices are sort of a progressive rendering that the further away you are from that date, the less you know about it and the less real it is. So, you know, some people will talk about like, know your year, then know your half, and then know your quarter, and then know your month, and then know your week, you know, kind mm -hmm. of thing as you progress it. But it generally, as you go, you should be refining that down to a point where you can tell everybody, you know, six months in advance that, hey, this is the date we're shipping on, everyone prepare and, and, and that's how you have the biggest successes because everyone can amplify everybody gets behind you and um so that was a real wake-up call when i started to like when that stuff when i started getting exposed to that stuff and even now like when we talk about we're smart enough to know that if you're in a big triple a game you're probably going to have partnerships what do partnerships want partnerships want content mm -hmm. um, because they want to put you know they want to put their logo in your game or they want to find some way to represent you know so to go all the way to almost done and then go like, oh, wait, what? We need to create more content for partnerships? Like, like you, just, you should, that's, like that, that's guaranteed. Like that's, of anything you know on day one of your project is if you're a big AAA game is that at some point in the future, marketing is going to come to you and say, I've got to deal with blah, blah, blah. And they want blah, blah, blah in your game. And you go like, oh, I didn't have any content prepared for that. Like, you know, you should know that, right? And um, so it's, I, right. But not everybody, like, I'm, if you talk to people I work with, like, I'm a kind of a, I like the creative side. I like being involved in marketing. I like being involved in figuring out the trailers. I like being involved in uh, what's the key art for the box. And then so I, I care about those things a lot. I have high passion for that. So I, I think I'm a little more involved. And I've had a lot of people say to me, like, oh, you know, another GM I've worked with wouldn't, wouldn't be in this meeting right now. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> like I am. And cause I want, I care about what this looks like and, and I care about, you know, those, those sorts of things. So, but yeah, it's a big part. Like it's a business and we don't make game like the notion when people say, mm -hmm. why are we doing this thing to charge this amount of money or whatever you go? Well, cause at the end of the day, like we're spending a lot of money to make a game and it's a business, so we can't just give mm -hmm. everything away for free, and we're not—it's not charity. And so, um, I think one of the things that's useful, and one of the things we've been trying to do, is have more 
um, time for education and bring in the finance person and say, why didn't you explain how a P&L works? And why didn't you mm. explain what run rate means? And why didn't you explain what an OPEX is? And, and having people's eyes light up to go like, oh, I didn't understand. I didn't get why you're making these types of decisions and those sorts of things. Like, it can be really useful and empowering when you talk about like, do you know this studio costs X dollars per year to run? And like, where's that coming from? If we're just making games for the goodness of our heart, you know, like that right. kind of thing. So, yeah, that's, um, that's, that's a really great, uh, lesson in there. And, you know, I think like I, I went from a job, uh, from like, you know, working for others for nine years and then I worked for myself for three and when I went back to work for others, I was a dramatically mm. different person because <laughs> I right. ran my own business, yeah. right? And so, and like, I almost went bankrupt one time and I almost couldn't pay my taxes until I signed those two right. things at the last minute. And then I had jury duty and I was worried right. that I wouldn't be able to finish the two things and pay my, like, <clears throat> it, th there was a dramatic difference between, um, Ethan, who didn't feel mm. responsibility for his paycheck, and Ethan, who did feel yeah. responsibility mm -hmm. for his paycheck. I've had that. Right? Like, oh, it's my job to do the things that make it so that someone can give me money to pay rent. They don't, they don't give me money just because 100%. I'm here. Yeah, no, right? exactly. Yeah, I think we all mature in different ways. Like, I found, if you go back to my early career um, 20 years ago, I was... I was very product. I was product over people. I cared more about the game than I did about the team. Just if I'm being honest, like that was a big thing. You know, 20 years ago, I was very much like, it's all about getting mm -hmm. the right game and the right quality and making sure we do what we said we were going to do. And just, it's all very product. And like I, like I said, you know, Counter Strike was one of the hardest projects I ever worked on. Um, because of that, we were very focused on okay, what's important here is getting the game out. Um, and then as I've gone through my career. Um, to being a studio head of the coalition and now being a general manager of um, the whole franchise of you know, and being a you know senior vice president is like I'm way more people oriented than I was in the past like and, and I'm much more empathetic and I'm much more about how you create sustainable development and how you do things that are not damaging to the team because um, 20 years ago I would have like I would have crunch the entire team to get a game out and now having been doing it for 20 years mm -hmm. like i'm way like that's not how this that's not success and so how do i find success in doing it in a sustainable way that achieves our product goals but if you achieve your product goals at the cost of the team you're not succeeding so like i'm i've matured as a leader from that perspective just as i've moved up and had more responsibility over more people because like most of my career as a producer was was matrix which i had all of the responsibility and no authority. Like I, when I shipped, when I shipped gears one, mm. I had no directs like, because everybody was in their own mm -hmm. like discipline based silo. I had nobody reporting to me. And so everything I did was through influence and persuasion and giving them, you know, good arguments for why we should do this, that, or the other thing. Um, and it wasn't really until I got to the coalition where now I had, all these cross-discipline directs reporting to me that I had to care about these teams and really focus on, oh, okay, like, how do I take care of the team, not just how do I take care of the game? Um, and so it's, it was a real change for me, uh, much like your, you know, like, hey, we're in a business, we're not just here for a hobby, we're, we're trying to succeed and we, we want to be sustainable and we want to be able to go on. Like, I, I have a similar type of maturation. Yeah, I, it, it sounds to me like um, if you're product-focused, you might 
uh, uh, win this war, but at the expense of yeah. Losing it's like you win the, the battle, but you lose the war. Yeah. Or another way, but like if you're yeah. Yeah, like if if you're people focused, that me that's that's about focusing on the long term health of the franchise, and especially and, and maybe live services make it even more important totally. to be people focused than ship date focused because you know there's we're no longer in the world of of go gold ship go, go on vacation yeah yeah take a month off yeah. right yeah it's like go gold ship the disc and then the real yeah, and, the real and, and challenges now start begin. with day one patch and then ship the day one patch and then get ready for season one or whatever yeah i agree i think there's a there's a fine there's a line yeah. right because one of the things i i often see is that by being people-centric you end up um that notion of like oh um i couldn't my car broke down so slipped the, the game by a day kind of thing which i we can't like that's not how you manage with predictability and transparency and build credibility with management or with the business or with the company. So there's a, there's a line there where you have to, and that's why I always say, whenever I say a date, someone says like, how do, why do you think you could make that date? And it's because I control the scope. Like I can make you a very small game by that date, or I can make you a big mm-hmm. game, but I control the scope. And as long as I control the scope, I can make a date. Like making a date isn't hard. Making a date with a specific game is the hard part. Um, and so it's really about looking about like, what is it, what's the MVP for your product? Like, what does the game have to be? What do you want it to be? What could it be? And what's great about live services now, we no longer talk about what are you cutting forever? It's about what are you postponing till the next season or the next patch or what have you. And so it gives you a lot more freedom, a lot easier. Nobody's crying in the hallway that their feature got cut. They're like realizing it's just postponed. Right. (laughs) <laughs> we'll never exactly. fuse gems. It's it's the difference between we'll never fuse gems and we'll fuse gems yeah. in Yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. November, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh this has been uh just an amazing conversation. This this hour has flown right by. Um I I just, you know, it's an evergreen topic. I I I think I'll probably go back and listen to this 6 months ago, 6 months from now when I'm like, fuck, what do I do about X or Y? Um, but, but to close it out, you know, Diablo is a massive franchise. I know you're mm. always looking for good people. Are there, are there any particular roles or open needs you have right now that, that you'd like to highlight for people who might be listening to this, uh, episode of production and, and inspired by uh, what they've learned? I mean, from honestly, we're, we're pretty much, we're a big team we have big ambitions in terms of what D4 is and what the franchise is, is going to be in the future. And, we want to build a live service that is playable for years and years um, after we ship D4. So, honestly, if you're into if you're into Diablo um, and any, and I sound like somebody you wouldn't mind hanging around with, then uh, like whether you're an engineer, artist, producer, tester, you name it, um, I'd love for you to apply because there's lots of um, ways to do that on, on LinkedIn and what have you. But like we're always looking for great people. Um, and so I'd, I'd love for people to want to come in and work with us on Diablo. Awesome. Well, Rod, thank you. For oh, your time. thanks. Yeah, I was trying to, you know, I was working on my podcast voice. I don't think I figured it out, but you know, hopefully it's not too hard to listen to. So, oh, the, the key sorry. is to get closer okay. to the mic and quieter. That's how you get. That's that's oh, how you sound so like you're in it's this. It's more like this. Way. Okay. This time. There we go. Thank you. There you go. That's that's how you really get the good podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All right. yeah you too thanks, thanks and, so much uh, happy to ever talk again uh, this is a topic I, I love talking about game development so anytime you want to do it let me know
Thank you for listening to the whole episode. If you like this podcast, please do leave a comment and share the episode. If you want to access the Deconstructor of Fun community with hundreds of senior games folk, go to our website and apply to the Slack group. And if you want to get notified of all the new content we have coming out every week, do subscribe to the weekly Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Finally, do remember, we love you guys and we appreciate you guys. Catch you next time.